Hey, everybody. Thank you for your patience. Bill and I ran into some technological hiccups. So we're going to circle back and add some like final thoughts in reflecting on this conversation so far and figuring out how we can support those that might be listening, maybe their prospective OTPs, maybe their early stage academics, maybe you're a new grad, and maybe you're new in discovering your own neurodivergence. Maybe you're also late diagnosed, or maybe you have navigated your OT student career through the pandemic and the mental and social challenges that come and the access barriers that you've experienced in your own development. And I guess what I'm hoping is folks listening so far, that some of the challenges that Bill and I have navigated have also become these huge blessings in the body of our research work and our focus and our insight that some of the challenges that we've experienced socially and in these different areas have ended up created a huge interest and a drive and a passion that's now led to trailblazing in OT and other areas. So sometimes these challenges are also gifts that we gain from. One of the things I was thinking about, Bill, too, while you were sharing some of your perspective is on the OT Lifestyle Movement podcast with Rhiannon and Chris. She got to have a discussion with Dr. Michael Owama, who I know that you're likely connected to and informed by, especially as Asian, Asian heritage OTPs and scholars. But I remember he talked in that podcast about the challenge that his perspective had in the OT community and the OS community and strangely offering a more Eastern perspective on OT theory ended up not being very welcome to him in the Japanese context. He faced some, like what might be described as some ostracization within the leadership infrastructures in Japan. Are you aware of that context, Bill? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think it's, I think I remember I went to the WFOT conference in Japan. Definitely. I think, and I think I also had some conversations with Dr. Iwama over the years. Definitely. I think that definitely he faced some turbulence, at least in the early goings of his career about sharing his word and the Kawa model, if I'm correct. Actually, that was another thing I remember I was going to say before we got cut off, too, is Dr. Mike Sai shared a meme on his Facebook community in the last few months that I really appreciated, where he said, if you find that you're getting a lot of backlash and judgment about your unique form of practice as an OT, keep going, just wait. In 10 years, those same OTPs are going to be inviting you to speak about it. And that's something that happened with Dr. Awama too, where in the inertial stages, he faced a lot of pushback in the U.S. and internationally. And some of that's still happening to this day in occupational science. I was just new to realizing that, oh, Dr. Gary Kilhoffner maybe wasn't a big fan of occupational science. And there might be some things that I'm not aware of in the occupational science world that weren't a big fan of Gary Kilhoffner. 
But for me as a scientist, I don't care as much about the people and the little, like the political dramas as much as what does this work have to teach us about the knowledge of occupation and how can we depersonalize some of our scholarships so that we get the best of all these perspectives and know it might not be that one lens is always going to work in every cultural context. I'm really grateful that Dr. Michael Obama kept pushing forward despite having a controversial perspective and ruffling feathers because now we have this amazing model that is allows us to look at cultural relativism and allowing our clients to lead and sharing their wisdom and to listen. I'm really glad that he was brave and willing to show up in those really exclusive spaces so that now over the last several decades, the Kawa model has grown internationally and is transforming not just the lives of individuals, but also organizations and communities and challenging OTPs all over the world to think more broadly, not just at that individual level, but how we really do belong to an ecology and into an ecosystem. I'm so grateful that he showed up and paved a path that I wonder Maybe in some ways, some of the trailblazing of Dr. Michael Awama also helped blaze a trail for you, Dr. Dr. Wong, for being of Asian descent. Do you have a sense of that as being somebody that's also got to engage with Dr. Michael Awama? Yeah, I think like some of my work, I realized that Dr. Awama has been in the field for much longer than I have, of course. I guess it's definitely, I guess it's, if you're talking about stages in terms of acceptance, I think that there are times that definitely I'm not there yet in terms Helpful of... Helpful to have that role model for you, too, to know that there's been other male Asian OTs that have been able to create a robust academic career. Yeah, I think so. So I think it's like, definitely I've taken a few pages of his book, for sure. I think that we talked about yesterday, too, about, okay, as, as a young, or as a newer practitioner, I shouldn't say the word young. This is a newer practitioner. I go abroad more often than people would think. I think that, I think that was something that I took a page from Dr. Obama's book. Because I think that one thing I learned from him is like, hey, you know what? Especially over the last few years, I think that it's important to actually spread the word of your work if you're able to, especially in your younger years, and especially I think now is sort of magnified by COVID too, in terms of, yeah, you never know if you wait a little bit. It's like you never know when the next opportunity would be. So I'm glad that some of my work had started before COVID, so to speak. And then I think that, Very. yeah, in a sense, it's like COVID was like a wake-up call because like I think before COVID, it's okay, it's like, you know what? These opportunities are... Like, I think that some people might take these opportunities for granted, but then COVID, we cannot go anywhere. That sort of is another thing, too, that I think that was very unprecedented time in our profession as well. That's where I'm, like, grateful and hope I can share a degree of honor from your example, because it's given me the courage to also show up and put myself out there and see what happens. That's one of my pet peeves sometimes in the OT leadership community is 
Like, for example, in my own state association that I've been involved in, whenever the topic of OT and mental health comes up for years, it always felt, okay, this is going to take decades to do. This is going to take, like, forever. It's probably never going to happen that OTs can be qualified mental health practitioners in the state of Washington. And I would see that come up almost annually in our legislative committee discussions, and we would almost always say, oh, that's just too much of a pipe dream. And in my mind, as somebody that like came from community organizing prior to becoming an OT, it's been really satisfying to have this past year where we took advantage of a critical juncture. I like that you use that term, Dr. Wong, because really when you're doing policy work, you have to be nimble and keeping your eye out for strategic opportunities to advance your message. And that's something that you were just speaking to about how Even if you feel like you're young and this isn't the space for you, there's no better time than to start now, right? Yeah, something is going to take decades to come to fruition if you never start. It's not going to start until somebody starts. And what we ended up discovering in one legislative session by building a strategic partnership with a legislator and a demonstration example of how OT could have an impact in our community, that legislator just created a bill for us. That would enable reimbursement for behavioral health OT and community-based mental health services. And that got accomplished along with adding OT to the list of behavioral health practitioners just in one session. So not decades. It literally happened within a matter of a couple of months that we transformed the future of our field. But first, you have to believe it's possible, right? And this is something our clients face all the time. In order to get up and walk to the bathroom after having a stroke or severe cardiovascular, the first step is believing you can do that. And that's what I hope in this community-based model, partnering with folks like Dr. Wong, is we want to encourage those listening to the audience, whether you're an OTP, you're a student, you're a scholar, or a community member, the first step is believing that change is possible knowing it's going to be disruptive in advance, but that's why you show up and do it anyway so it's not as hard for the next generation of this diverse world that we want. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it was like, it's almost like me navigating my time in the OT world as well in terms of leadership at AOTA level. Definitely, I think it's one of those things. Of, you know what? I think... When I receive an advice about how to navigate OT leadership, like about a decade ago, I think one of those things that I've been told is like, hey, you know what? It's like maybe your time in these experiences are not rosy, are not going to be rosy. But at the end of the day, it's like, hey, you know what? What you get out of it, out of the experience is probably the most important. And I find that, yeah, I think my last six plus years in terms of getting involved in AOTA, in a sense, is definitely it's a learning experience, whether it's for the good or for the bad or for the ugly. I think it's like definitely seen a lot. And I think that it only informed me in terms of how to be a better citizen in terms of OT and creatism changes that might benefit for the whole profession, for the whole profession moving forward. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. 
Yeah, I think in a sense that, yeah, so I think in that sense too. And I know earlier in the conversation, we talked about my involvement in the TEDx space. Ironically, it's almost, I think I know that before the pandemic, it was like, definitely, I would definitely will not be against the OT community's idea in terms of, oh my God, this is going to take tens of thousands of dollars and a lot of time, a lot of labor to actually make one of these things happen. And then, little did we know, the pandemic changed the vlogging. But I will say that, actually, even though the OT community might see that, hey, I'm the first one in terms of navigating the space in the pandemic, but definitely, I definitely have spent quite a bit of time in the early goings of the pandemic just to use it as a reset button to see if I really want to do this. And then seeing how other groups from across the globe, other teams, I would say, across the globe, they actually come up with some solutions, especially some of very innovative solutions to bring that thing going. And then actually, I was like, I was very privileged to be part of the audiences of these events and seeing how these virtual events have evolved. And then actually I asked some friends, I was like, hey, you know what, can I do this? So like, and then they said, absolutely you can. If you are resourceful enough, you are smart enough, you probably can do this, no problem. At first I was very skeptical about this. But then when I got to study more, and I realized that it wasn't I wasn't passionate, in terms of getting involved in the tech space, I just realized that it's OT, right? We teach patients how to use proper body mechanics to do a task. Like, turns out in terms of the TEDx world, it's like I wasn't smart in terms of using the proper, setting up a good structure that I could thrive in. I did not do that. And then COVID, when I saw other teams in action, that was when like, hey, you know what? Maybe I can set up a structure that will work for me. And in turn, that can help me make difference for other people. And well, having the that, role models, right? Having some role models and comparison and seeing how other people have learned too and being open to sharing that information to support each other. It sounds like that was helpful. Oh yeah, that was actually very helpful too. So it was like, I think it's almost like a house flipping thing. People like house flipping. So it's like definitely is, it's almost like before they actually set the selling price of a house, they will actually scout the neighborhood to see the, what they would like to sell the house for. So I think in a sense, it's like I use a similar process when I run my own TEDx events. It's okay. It's when I went to so many events, I'm like, okay, this is what I get for a high-end event. And this is what I get for a low-end event. So then I ask my question is, okay, based on the assets that I have, based on the resources that I have, what can I really do? So I know when I told some people, like, okay, I would only do a little bit above the minimum. And people were like, really? It's just a little bit? It's, and then I just said, oh yeah, it's like, you guys don't know the space very well. So if you get to see very fancy stuff, don't like, you will realize that, yeah, this is one of those things that I can, I would dream to pull it off, but I cannot pull it off because of the lack of resources, lack of time, lack of bandwidth on my part, but I still try to turn in a quality product as well as I can. And, and that's really like community building. Day, yeah. And at the end of the day, 
I think when I reflect upon my experiences so far, I realized that, hey, you know what? It's not about the bells and whistles that what counts. It's the passion and the heart that what counts. I think that's something that also carries with me in terms of my leadership journey. I realized that, hey, you know what? There are some stumbles along the road. And it's like, hey, you know what? Nobody's perfect, as you mentioned before. So it's one of those that is like, hey, you know what? If I get a genuine effort to serve and I serve a decent amount of time, I think that I pay my dues and I think that's good enough. I think so. And I think, too, one of my favorite things to try to develop and cultivate, especially as a therapist, is that sense of humility, right? I think that's something, too, that I've learned from Dr. Michael Obama's work as well, is how much we can center, like, we can, like, those of us that do grow up in more Western cultures that do tend to prioritize the self and going things on your own and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and stuff. I feel that Dr. Michael Awama's work also shows that value of thinking more so about the collective, about the community, how to be of service and putting that first and seeing where that will take you of not necessarily being the one in control of the situation. And I think too, I remember in our conversation yesterday, Bill, you you mentioned that you're, you've really been starting to understand a lot of your work as in the role of an activist. And that's certainly an identity that's been prominent in my development in occupational history as well. But I think if we show that as an activist, you don't have to be perfect and it's never going to be perfect. I think it actually makes it more accessible to people. Because I think people, when you're trying to be a perfectionist about it, it's paralyzing and we don't take enough action. And I hear that a lot from different marginalized communities. They'd rather us take imperfect action as privileged participants than to not take action at all sometimes. Like, it's better to ask for forgiveness for doing something wrong than just to sit on the sidelines and be complicit with a system that's denying the humanity to important members of our community. You know what? I agree with that, too. I think that's the reason. I think that over the years that definitely I've accomplished some triumphs, but over time, I also made some mistakes as well. Some are major, some are minor. But regardless, like those experiences, I think that especially when we're trying to cultivate people from diverse backgrounds to take over our work eventually. So it's like, hey, you know what? That's sometimes it's good lessons to learn from, so to speak. I think so. I think it's very good experiences. And I think that definitely at least I can say is, hey, you know what? There are some parts that you definitely can learn from me in terms of what I've done well. But then there are also things that is like, hey, you know what? This, if it goes too far, that might be the pitfall if you're not careful, so to speak. But of course, as pioneers, as activists, sometimes you cannot be perfect. No, and we bet, and I think also we're always going to be imperfect, especially as individuals. And I think we'll always be stronger in community which is part of why I wanted to invite collaborating with Bill to honor his history and his example and his occupational like growth process, especially around being a champion in bringing conversations related to occupational therapy and occupational science 
in the informal publishing space and really showing us what's possible. And what I'm hearing from Bill, too, is that it's not always an easy path. And those of us that want to be in allyship and want to be support to marginalized OTPs, I think there is a call to show up and let's, those of us that are here, let's support the work like Bill Wong, let's support Dr. A's work, let's support these marginalized identity OTPs that are facing backlash for being trailblazers and advancing and helping our organizations be responsive to occupational justice and activism issues. We're at risk of losing these voices if we don't support and empower them. So I invite you all to check out Bill Wong's social media presence in particular, and absolutely the TEDx talks that he's helped curate and give a platform to. I think that's another amazing thing about your body of work, Dr. Wong, too, is how much, even in the TEDx process, that's sharing a platform for others. And I know, like, in particular, you facilitated a TEDx events during COVID to really highlight women's voices, to and spaces that haven't been heard. And you're also looking at how can we support people with disabilities in the context of climate crisis, right? These are really important questions that we have to start having both within and outside the academy if we're going to have hope of changing the reality of our disability clients that we seek to serve, not just in outpatient settings and school-based settings and institutional settings, but I'm hoping that through engaging with occupational science, all of you as OTPs are starting to see the role that we can play in our communities, in the naturalistic environments, and thinking more entrepreneurially and more innovatively. Bill was saying, we can be early adopters and we can be the trailblazers blazers in our generation to create different models of service delivery, such as those that can be seen now that have been developing for decades internationally. The medical model isn't the only way to offer and develop OT services. Dr. Wong, could you talk a little bit, too, about how you've been using your OT lens, like with the tech community, with I know you were even looking at going into user experience design. There's all these opportunities and critical junctures that OTs that are willing to put themselves out there could probably find really meaningful careers if they're willing to think outside the box. Oh, yeah. I think there's this blog called the non-clinical PT, so to speak. So I think it was started by PT and they definitely have many guests from former OT, former PT, former SLP actually get involved in non-traditional careers, whether it's related to medical or not related to medical. I think that is a very cool blog to also shout out as well in terms of their work. I know personally I made an entry about that, talking about my work in text work. I know that I think that my text space definitely, I think that one of the things that I guess I've learned is almost, I guess before me getting involved in the TEDx organizing space, I would consider myself like a frog living at the bottom of the world. I only have very limited viewpoint of what's up there in terms of this. and then of course it does the same right it's the sky's the limit I think is once I got involved in the organizing space I realized that it's like hey you know what there are all these things that are very innovative or at least okay it's upward for the times so to speak and then so like when I got involved in the space so much sometimes I really question myself it's like hey why is OT not getting involved in it 
And then I think in the conversation that we talked about yesterday too, in terms of, hey, you know what, is it because of like, sometimes it's like we hold on to our traditions so much on what we believe is very tried and true. But at the same time as, you know what, maybe it's time for some new thinking, new school of thoughts to actually get involved in this to actually meet the societal needs of today and tomorrow too. For me, I consider myself more of a maverick. Having over time, I realized that, hey, you know what? I don't fit the cookie cutter mode of an OT leader. I don't fit it because I realized that, hey, you know what? It's like, I'm someone who likes to speak my mind. And I realized that, hey, you know what? Sometimes it's very hard when you're representing an organization Sometimes it's like those kind of efforts when you try to speak your mind, sometimes it can get, get you into trouble. And I realized that is something that, wow, it's a very tough balance for me. I think I did not realize that. It can be both and. I think you can get into trouble and you can also, with doing that, also find opportunities for success and moving forward. Some of what you're sharing, I'm thinking about how much I've fallen down into the, I've become a fully initiated Swifty over this past year. And having, I guess, in some ways where we were talking about how you have gotten to, in some ways, relate to Dr. Michael Awama's work as a sign of representation for Asian men being able to succeed in the OT community, not just in as a practitioner, but also as a scholar and an international influencer in the development of theory. And I certainly have a sense of, I'm so excited to see how your career evolves, Dr. Wong, because I think it's like as high as Dr. Wama has been able to go, I certainly see you blazing new trails and expecting and anticipating that pushback. But I would say Taylor Swift is a similar figure in my life because we both share the same birth year. So I say I share the same birth year with occupational science and Taylor Swift. I was born in 1989. And Taylor Swift has also been systematically underestimated because she started so young in the in the music industry. And she always got dismissed about like maybe she was an industry plant or she can't possibly be writing her own music. And she certainly has talked pretty openly about the level of bullying that she experienced in childhood. And I think in my own trauma recovery work, I've been realizing just how much bullying has been part of my lifespan challenges, similar to most other probably neurodivergent folks, like people in school probably weren't nice to us at different times. And I think sometimes too, when you're precocial, even if you're gifted, even if you don't get tracked into the special education realm, there are nuances and the challenges that you can experience in school settings. And sometimes too, even if you have talents, like I don't know, Bill, if maybe you had a talent with statistics or math or something, sometimes they pretend that if you're good at one thing, you have to be good at everything. And you're like not allowed to struggle with some things. But most neurodivergent people have strengths in some areas and weaknesses in other areas. Anyway, It's pretty obvious to everyone now that Taylor Swift has a very successful career because she's persisted and pushed through and represented lots of different ways of doing music. She's broken how the system works in some ways and innovated in other ways. She has an interesting relationship to disrupting tradition and maintaining tradition. 
And I think when you get that backlash, it can also be fuel that can help amplify your success and help build communities that can empathize and connect to you as a human being. So sometimes I really anchor into that, that other people that have experienced bullying and pushback have used that as fuel and drive to amplify their talents and share them on a different level. And it really can change our culture, just being vulnerable about those struggles. So I just think to to me, you're at a similar level in the OT community. Hopefully you probably have some Bill Wong fans in the same way we have Swifties that are probably cheering you on from the sidelines. And we're probably helping people that are in the margins that are silent. So sometimes it feels like we're alone, but we might have people cheering us on on the sidelines, but we're never going to know that if we don't put ourselves out there and if we don't try to represent these voices. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it's like, as long as I'm my trials and tribulations, I think that is a very good learning experience too. In terms of, I think in the end, hey, you know what, my six years or so getting involved in AOTA, I think that there are some positive moments and there are some negative moments. And I think that probably the message I would say is, hey, you know what, it's like, you gotta, is I do me, you do you. I think that's the most important thing. I We're think, not going to be everybody's cup of tea. No, I think it is one of the things I've learned about my leadership style. I realized that, yeah, there are times that it's like, I mean, it's like I'm intentional, but I also think that there are times that it's like, hey, I am effectively wild, so to speak. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, hey, you know what? If that's part of my personality as a leader, I was like, you know what? That's part of who I am, and I, I embrace it. Because I yeah. think that it's like, hey, you know what? At least, oh, I'm not like saying some random things out there. There are times I was like, okay, you know what? I need space to share about myself. And sometimes like, if people don't understand it, take it or leave it. I think so. And I think you can always keep pivoting too. If you're finding that, okay, maybe being involved with my state association, I can't I'm not going anywhere, I'm not developing, or I not. I don't like the way that I'm being treated by some of the people I'm working in. You can take yourself out of that space and find a new space where it, you're more compatible, that your strengths and your goals and things, like, it's so important to not give up. Just because one door closes doesn't mean that there's not a window opening somewhere, and I think I've heard that from you, like you and I have taken some times where we've taken breaks from being involved in the state or federal associations or worked with other partnerships or gone into a different industry. If you're feeling discouraged in one spot, maybe it's direct your Kawa River in a different direction and find people who like, like, Bill, I really appreciate the things that you share on Facebook that bring to light challenges that we need to be responsive to. You're somebody who, like, Bill Wong's work is my cup of tea. It doesn't have to be everybody's cup of tea, but I'm here to support it. And it's good for us to have diversity in our field. And it's so much more possible to sustain in building community. I'm curious, Bill, do you have any advice for, I would say, maybe neurodivergent perspective OTs that are listening, maybe OT academics that are there that want to do research or OT educators about where's a good starting place to try to create a more inclusive sense of belonging for neurodivergent OTPs, students, colleagues. And I think this even applies, even if you're not a neurodivergent OT, 
you might be working with a neurodivergent PT or a neurodivergent doctor, right? We need to learn to accommodate people of difference in these different roles as we become more diverse. So it's really important to listen to these voices, even if they might challenge your worldview. It's good to hear it direct from the source. And that's not to say I'm asking this based on Bill's experience and research. I know I don't want to ask you to represent all neurodivergent people, but do you have any advice that you've cultivated from your lived experience and your research so far that we can take to heart in trying to cultivate more belonging in the communities we're a part of? I think mentorship is very critical, as we talked about many times in our conversation today. I mean, that's one of those is like, how can we maximize them to their professional potential versus being in situations that are comfortable in. Because, hey, everybody has a safe zone. Everybody has a fear zone. So it's like, as a mentor, how do I get somebody from point A to point B? And sometimes it's okay because it's a little step. But sometimes it's a quantum leap, so to speak. So sometimes I think one thing I've learned over time is that, especially from a mentor point of view, I think that... It's important to be patient. I think it's important. I know it sounds cliche because actually I'm not the most patient person in the world. So for me to exercise patience, especially when with my mentees, I think that is a very important thing that I gotta exercise. Is I don't wanna, it's like, gotta know when to push them and when to let them be themselves. That's a very hard line that I'm still trying to figure out because I know that everybody's different. I think there's that part. And the second part, I think, is that I know we talk about, I think one of the things we talk about is like ableism and stuff, bullying. Yeah, I think the kind of environment sometimes is, yeah, I think it's like, I know that my my involvement in the OT world, in the leadership scene, definitely, I would say, it's definitely an adjustment. That I think many people in the OT community are learning. As you said, I'm not representing all neurodivergent people, but at the same time, okay, you know what? Each case is different. Is does the infrastructure in place? Is it really supportive of neurodivergent individuals? My answer, I would say, it really is really hit or miss. It can maybe use some work and especially too coming from the background as somebody of color as well. I think we have some work to do with AOTA that we really started in our roots as a formal organization back in 1917 where people of color didn't have human rights acknowledged in the United States of America. And some of that systemic logic got baked into the traditional infrastructures and I'm speaking right now with somebody from settler descent and like the traditions that are very important to my ancestors and that were part of the settlement of the United States. We know now through things like occupational science and through history and listening and learning from different perspectives, like there isn't just one way of telling history. There's not one white right way of doing things. And many of these structures will were built off of a campaign to intentionally cultivate something called like white supremacy, which was this idea that if we built our social structures to prioritize and support the traits that were valued among people that were in some cases just lucky enough to be considered white, 
that we created an imbalanced social structure to prioritize the needs, the wishes, the desires of people that come from settler descent and a Caucasian background. And we now have to mindfully reflect on where that's built into these traditional structures, these historical legacies that we maintain. Not all traditions are healthy for everyone, including those of us who benefit from whiteness. I know from my perspective, my connection to whiteness has deprived me from knowledge of my own culture in a more broad, holistic way. I haven't gotten, sometimes it blinds you to information and I think right now we have invitations to do that with these Jedi efforts and with occupational science and with when these challenging conversations come up at conference, not just AOTA from talking to Bill, these conversations were challenging even Australia. I actually worked with Australian OTs this week to talk about intergenerational occupational profile exercise, and they were mentioning how much the culture of white supremacy is also a barrier to rebuilding therapeutic relationships with more diverse backgrounds. So I think oh, yeah. I have to add to that too. So yeah, do you want to speak to that? Of course, I add to that too. So I think one of the themes from the, even from the 2018 World Federation Congress. So definitely, I have definitely heard my share of presentations that were very critical of the comments assessments being used in our field because, oh, they don't really cater to the African culture, so to speak, or like the norms are like, oh, most of the norms maybe are from the African, I mean, from the Caucasian or white population, so to speak. And sometimes their norms are very different from the norms of the African's population, African contingent. So definitely, I think one of the things that is, yeah, we talk about culture a lot in our conversation today, too. So it's like, definitely, it's like, I think that Congress, sort of the, the, my takeaway from that Congress is like, okay, are the assessments that we're using, are they really culturally sensitive? A lot of the assessments that I use require like a really strong command of the English language. That's one of the things I really feel like imbalances our service delivery towards norms that are more like European centric or Western philosophy centric. And I think that's what's so cool about occupational science and OT and our diversity within our epistemology and our theory is we have options. You don't have to only in the OT domain and process in the U.S., we can use mixed method assessments. Like sometimes I use assessments just to open the door to then being more holistic on top. You can be culturally mindful by figuring out the language to make the argument about why you might be using a more informal assessment or where it's in a different language or partnering with translators. It's so important to start building a lens to think more holistically because if you just do it blindly and you just follow the same systems that we've always followed, you're going to end up maintaining ableism, maintaining white supremacy, and defaulting to these practices that are not culturally mindful or culturally humble. And if you don't want to end up in a situation where there could be controversy around your services, this is where there's great that we have representation and we have conversations that you can be part of now to start evolving your practice to be more less likely to cause harm with other cultures and communities.
Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think about, again, we talk about my leadership experiences again. It's almost like I know that I think as I got to know more autistic OT students, I think, oh, I think over time that there could be, I could be introduced to more autistic students out there because of the fact that I'm so out there in the field. I think that definitely I know that over time, definitely get asked is like, Hey, you know what? Is what I do really worth it? I said, I would probably say is buyers beware in terms of, Hey, you know what? It's like, you probably have to be the judge. I think that, I think because like I know in recent years, I talked to some autistic students about, we mutually share some experiences with each other. I think when I share my experiences, I think that sort of sparked a discussion of, hey, you know what? I know that before I actually share my experiences, I know that some of these autistic students have said to me, wow, this looks so great. I'm really inspired by you. But then it's like when we get to the nitty gritty and stuff, that's when they realize, oh my God, that's a price that I probably will not be able to pay. Or as, hey, that's, that's something like the backlash of I would not be able to stomach it like you did. You know. Interesting. What do you think for if there are neurodivergent students, OTPs listening? And honestly, I haven't been aware of that. I remember posting after I got to go to one of the OTA programs in my area, one of the students afterward talked to me and said, whoa, you have ADHD and you got a doctorate. And I was like, oh, wow, I didn't even think about that. And I didn't even think about now I get, I'm like representing nonverbal learning disability, right? From that, I don't even think honestly, Bill, I've considered about even the potential of the role that I might play as somebody with ADHD and NBLD of some of us that are these trailblazers. That's an opportunity that we have to show up in mentorship with the community to help the path be a little bit smoother for the generation that comes after us. What have you found or what sort of advice would you have for other neurodivergent OTs or disabled OTs to start reaching out for mentorship? Like, what are some of the initial steps that you think we could take? And I think I'll offer this platform too. feel free to reach out through my website. I'm actually offering 15 minute like empowerment calls just to get to know folks that are listening to the episode and figuring out how I can build community and be of support to the community. So that's an option if you want to reach out to me to learn about how I've tried to develop my messy leadership approach and saying things, too, that are controversial. I'm certain that Bill Wong would accept your friend request, for example. I think taking that initial step of reaching out and asking for help can sometimes be uncomfortable. Do you have any advice to neurodivergent OTs and students to take that initial step in seeking mentorship? I think sometimes it's like reaching for help is the most important thing. It's like what we, what we tell our mental health clients. Seeking help is not a sign of weakness. Seeking help is actually showing strengths. So I think that the fact that you're seeking mentorship, I think that is a strength that, hey, you know what? I might not be good at something or, hey, maybe I need some reassurance or whatever. You know that I'm on the right track. I think that is powerful to actually seek a second pair of eyes to look at your career to see if what you're going, where you're going is on the right track. I think it's really worth doing that. 
Have you ever had mentors that were actually like eventually you discover, you know how sometimes a therapist just isn't really a good fit for you? There might be some times where a mentor might not actually be the right fit. If you find that somebody maybe is discouraging you or just telling you to be quiet or like, do you think, I would imagine that it's good to have a diversity of support system. And I think too, from my perspective, I think mentorship is something that we benefit from like throughout our entire lifespan, right? I work with older adults every day. I'm much younger than them, but they have things to learn from me. Yes, I haven't been 88 years old, but I have, I do have some wisdom that could help. Sometimes the mentor might be younger than you. Have you ever had that experience, Bill? Not yet. Okay. Not yet, not yet in my career. I don't think so. Not yet. But I'm thinking that there are times I think is, yeah, there are times that I definitely experienced in my career that is, yeah, as I realized that, hey, you know what? There are times that like, I don't buy this advice. I think, so, often, yeah, yeah there are times that like, hey, you know what? I got to accept this advice with a grain of salt. Because we have to honor our experience also as occupational beings. Right. Even though I'm in my first 10 years as an OT practitioner and academic, I'm still in my first, I'm in my, when I started getting into political organizing at age 10. So I have 24 experience, 24 years experience doing political campaigns and community organizing. And I have 34 years experience growing up with nonverbal learning disability and ADHD and all these other things. So I think it's important to honor your lived experience expertise and what that might bring. And it might feel awkward to say, you know what, there might be some times where I have something to teach you, even though you've been a seasoned clinician for so long. Sometimes these traditions that we've inherited can be ableist and we also need you to listen and respond to younger people in the community that have had different experiences and different tools. I know even though I'm younger, I've gotten to share a lot about technology with what I call like my OT ancestors and mentors, where I think it's been a mutual share. So just because you show up in a mentor position doesn't mean you're in a disempowered position. You're also helping to shape and grow the career of those that you're in partnership with. So always know that you're adding value. Oh yeah, I think that's one thing I've learned over time as well. Is that I think is I think that some of my mentors are out there, but then it's like I'm way out there sometimes. It's like they really have to learn a lot about wow, what are the strengths I have, what are the privileges I have in terms of being very out there, but then also what are the additional challenges of being so out there. I think but of course, conversely too, when I meet my mentees, it's very different because like my mentees know that I'm very out there and then they are not on the opposite side of the spectrum. So it's almost okay. It's like definitely is understanding. And I think over time, I sort of realized the benefit too in terms of, hey, sometimes it's like laying low is not so bad. Sometimes. Bring some balance. It helps try out those different roles. I think that's a cool thing to think about is and something that I would inspire to if I'm ever in that role as a mentor to someone where the goal as a mentor isn't to create somebody that's identical to you. Or I think that's one of the ways that mentorship can be harmful is if OT is taught that there's only one right way to do OT. And that's just so not true. 
They're like, I always tell people at my work, there's a million and one ways in order to fulfill Medicare's guidelines. There isn't just one way. And the bare minimum of service delivery isn't the only thing medical Medicare will cover. That's just the bare minimum. So there's lots of different ways to do something. There isn't just one way. And so I think as a mentor, something that comes to my mind, and you can let me know your perspective on this bill, is I think entering that mentorship, I think we should be oriented that our goal is to help this occupational being that we're in partnership with be the best version of themselves than what they want to be in this role, which might not mean being exactly like our journey and what we've done and to be somewhat humble and okay if they make different choices than the ones we would make. Oh, yeah, I definitely agree with that sentiment. I think it's like when some of my mentees mentioned about research, I think I had to intentionally do a double take because, hey, you know what? It's like, at least from my experiences, this sort of work. And then they realize that, okay, like when they talk about, I think it was like one of my mentees talking about wanting to get involved in research. And I saw it showed them my journey in terms of how I got involved into research and the roundabout way to do it and the things that I had to overcome. I think that was when they realized, oh, wow, okay, maybe it is not as easy as I thought it is. So yes. sometimes, yeah, so sometimes, of course, I think that SOTs, one thing I've also learned that, is, hey, you know what it's like, I think the first time you meet someone is definitely not to squash the dreams. I think that's the same thing when we work our patients. It's, hey, sometimes the patients say, hey, I want to walk, even if the likelihood might be very low, so to speak. But sometimes, it's, hey, you know what, you might want to try to help the patient to get there if they had to the, Prerequisite qualities, maybe it's the intangibles, maybe it's the, maybe it's the physical baseline, but definitely, I think sometimes when the way I approach this kind of situation is, you know what? Sometimes it'd be demented to realize, okay, I've tried as far as I can. I try to implement as many strategies as I can to succeed. And maybe, okay, in the end, that's not for me then that's okay. At least I'm at peace with it. I think yeah. that, yeah, I think that's the, con- if that's the conclusion, I can help my mentees reach. Even though it's frustrating, it's not a happy ending per se, but at least I can say is like, hey, you know what? At least I think that from my mentee's perspective and my perspective, at least it's like, you know what? We really give a genuine effort. I and always need, it's oh, no sorry. Fault. Yeah, and it's no fault of anybody that we felt short of the goal. Well, yeah, and that's the only way we're going to progress is through incremental progress at some level. And I love what you said. That actually clicks for me. One of the things that I've been hoping to try to understand and maybe communicate is I think one of the things that can be toxic is if we impose our boundaries on other people. Like just because we have a limitation in one area doesn't mean that has to be the limit in how far others will go or how far an organization will go. So say if you're a leader in an organization and you don't have a capacity for a new project, but you have like new energy coming into the organization, you can self-modulate how involved you will be in that project without stifling those that are showing up to take the project where they want to go. And it might be uncomfortable because you won't be in control of what direction they go in, but we can still have boundaries and support others in their full growth. If we end up projecting our boundaries onto them and stifling 
their passions and their growth and their goals, then we're actually regressing our growth as a leadership community and organization. So it's good to have your own personal boundaries, but don't extend your boundaries onto another occupational being in a way that would limit their learning process and their growth process, because they're probably going to go somewhere very unexpected that you don't know because you don't have the full perspective on their occupational context. And it might not be that you have to put the energy of it, but don't stifle their energy. Basically you can communicate concerns, but it's important to respect others' boundaries, but also not limit when there's enthusiasm beyond a case. It doesn't mean that you have to be the one to do it. You can keep your boundaries while still supporting their growth and finding resources elsewhere. Sorry if I cut you off, Bill. Oh, no worries about it. Now that made me think about my TEDx example as well. So I think when my mentors first heard about my work, they were a little bit skeptical at first. And then, of course, when COVID happened, when they hear that, oh, I'm coming back, I'm doing more than ever. I think people, my mentors, at first they were like, what the hell are you doing? And I explained it like, okay, you know what? It seems like, I think as another man I explained to them, I think it was like, oh, by the way, I find a space that, yes, I still have to have some boundaries that I keep and some rules that I got to follow. But at the same time, as you know what? I think that I like that I can be freer, so to speak. I can be more myself. I like to use talents that I'm good, not only I'm good at, but other tools that I actually don't get to use as an LT in my day-to-day life or even in the leadership space. So I was like, hey, you know what? I like the having the creativity, having some freedom. So I think when they understand that, this, and then, but of course, I saw circle back and like, why I'm doing this? I was like, oh, it's like, hey, you know what? I'm not distracted from my long-term goals. I don't think so. I, I think exactly. you can find a way it's symbiotic with your long-term goals in exploring yeah, these spaces. Uh, yeah, it's not the way that anybody in OT would have thought of it. Mm-hmm. Hey, you know what? This works for me. And I think it really fits my maverick ways. Mm-hmm. So like, hey, you know what? I think that, you know what? If I hit a setback at any time in the OT world, I am, as we talk about pivoting, as I am not afraid to pivot. Me neither. Yeah. I think that's the only way we're going to get out of these limited boxes. I hear a lot of OTs complaining about being in limited boxes. And I just don't think that's ever going to change until we support those of us that want to grow outside of them. Oh, yeah. And of course, I know that I think speaking of the TEDx work, I know that many academics have definitely questioned me. It's like, why are you getting involved in this? And then I point out a peculiar thing. I was like, look at your annual portfolio when you had to turn it in to review what you have done for the year and stuff. And then I saw the highlight an item. It's like, oh, service to the university. And people are like, that is considered service to the university. And I justified it. I was like, oh yeah, you bet it is. People were thinking, oh, you just slap a logo of your school for five seconds for each thing, for each video that you produce, right? I said, no, that's not that at all. Actually, it's like behind the scenes, there's actually a lot of work that goes on to make it happen. And I think that is important to 
I think that I did acknowledge my privileges, right? So I was like, hey, you know what? My privilege as an academic is that, hey, I have my own Zoom account. And I know that I was like, hey, you know what? I should not be abusing these kind of privileges. And I thought about, hey, you know what? It's like in the in-person space, if I were using any part of the school as a venue to host any kind of community event, I think I should be acknowledging that, hey, you know what? I'm using school resources and I think they definitely need a little shout out of five seconds. And and then of course, it's like also in a sense, it's also marketing for the school because, hey, you know what? It's like this kind of work is like, believe it or not, is marketing for the school that people, like people might not have heard about this the school previously is guess what? It's like, it actually can bring exposure, so to speak. So I was like, hey, this is why it is service to the university. That's why I'm saying like some risks you don't, you might not realize they're worth taking until much later. I, so this podcast is just in the first couple months of development, really. And it's been an experiment for me. And it's like you said, having a passion project and something that you can have some creative autonomy with and I've had a hard time finding space to have these conversations within the associations I've been involved in. So I'm, and like you're saying, it's shocking to academics too. I'm braced to maybe have fallouts in my connection to academics, but I trust I will find some that are also interested in it. But like some of the conversations that I've gotten to have on the podcast so far even though it's it's in initial stages and it's not like the biggest podcast by any means, but I get to see some of the stats on who's listening. And right now I've had probably, wait, where was it? Let me pull up the total. So there's 276 downloads and multiple countries, but I was thinking like, with my presentations that I'm going to give, and I'm really lucky that Bill Wong is likely going to be part of a panel discussion at WODA with me. But usually when I do those sessions at conference, there's usually not much more than maybe 12 people that are there. And I'm certain that others will have much widely attendance. But hey, putting these conversations out there into the world, I've now gotten these conversations in front of a lot more people than 12 every year and they're accessible all year round and your TEDx talks that you produce. Yeah. You produce them once, but then they live on YouTube forever and that could potentially get accessed by thousands and hundreds of thousands of people over time. That's huge. Oh yeah. Um, that actually made me think about the 2017 back in the day when we had the Roseberry floats. I think that was the inspiration I had when I got involved in the TEDx work. Because like when I heard the Rose Parade float in terms of how much time, how much effort to put in that Rose Parade float, I heard that Rose Parade float was about 250,000, 300,000 to actually put it up. But then it's like, oh, you probably have a one minute on air on TV, you know, that the OT float was on there. And then, oh, you got to be in the local area to actually see the floats, you know, to actually see the float in person. But like social media can be such a low cost marketing venue. There are so many things that we could do with grassroots organizing and partnership with other communities. I love that about Gail Whiteford. 
she was saying, really, instead of just having one month about OT, it would almost be more strategic to have OTs partner with other disability organizations and show up to support their movements, too. That almost creates a better PR relationship when we show up in service instead of looking like we're just showing off. So building those community partnerships can be a really low-cost way of actually inclusive awareness, especially if we're not just telling people what we do, but we're showing what we do. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's like the podcast, too. Podcast is definitely a very low-cost way, or webcast is definitely a very low-cost way as well. And that's what I found. And I think that I know already we talked about TEDx, too. It was like, definitely, I think that when I shared my poster at the World Federation Conference, I think that some there were some academics that actually questioned me in terms of, hey, it doesn't fit the conference does it? Why do you think that fit the conference? And I Maybe just, it's your job not to fit because disabilities don't usually fit. No, actually, it's like, let me finish the question. Let me finish my answer. My yeah. thought. So then I was like, okay, so I cited in terms of the 2018 World Federation Conference about, oh, okay, you know what? It's like some of the stuff are very expensive or not very accessible. And then, oh, when I present that poster at the World Federation Conference, my justification was like, look at what I've done. And then I said, oh, you may think that it costs tens of thousands of dollars to put one of these together if it's on ground. But guess what? If it's online with the right support in place, it can only be like a few hundred dollars US. And that's significantly cheaper that to pull it off. And I think that, and then I highlight back the conversation at the World Federation Conference in 2018. Is, okay, is it accessible for everyone? I said, look, $500 US also, or even less than that, if I have the right infrastructure, it's like, hey, it might be very high price for the global south, so to speak, still, but still, hey, look, look, the amount I spent, for putting these TEDxes, sometimes it's less than the cost that you spend to register for the World Federation Conference. So you tell me if that's economical or not. I love that, Bill. And I'm so glad you were in your space to share that and highlight that. And I think that's where I think we're natural partners in collaborations to disrupt some of this space. I brought that up with some of the SSO stakeholders that I've worked with, where we're each spending about $2,000 even within the U.S. context, just to access this experience. And honestly, I would rather, instead of my $1,000 going towards a Hilton or a Hyatt, I'd much rather that resource that I spent out be delegated to the Global South to make this experience accessible for them, right? That would be a better use of my resources that I've earned as a clinician, where I would prefer to give back to the community Can we start thinking about lower cost venues to host conferences? And can we think about doing hybrid recordings and in-person meetings or doing like coffee shop gatherings while watching a TEDx discussion and having that mix of an in-person dialogue without putting an undue burden on our members to attend these conferences or knowing that when the costs are so high, We're not going to get people with disabilities to attend. We're not going to get people from outside organizations to attend and see what we do. It's going to only be an insular conversation because people can't afford to access the dialogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, yeah, that experience that made me think about 2017 in AOTA when we attend the Centennial Conference. So there was actually an autistic self-advocate in the area and she bought a one-day pass to attend the conference. And she said even that one-day pass was very steep for me. So that was like, yeah, so that was like, how accessible is that? And I think that the guest pass is significantly cheaper than what we pay for our registration for the conferences, too. So that's another thing to consider. One of the things is, when do our institutions become almost more of a burden than a support to our membership? Is our goal to serve and support the institution, or is it the institution's goal to help facilitate these transformative impacts. Like when you were mentioning the college, right? I'm sure the college's mission is to be of service to the community that you're in, I think in the Los Angeles area and to support the growth of students in that area, which certainly your work with TEDx outreach would be doing. But sometimes we lose focus. Is our goal as clinicians to support the institutions we're working for, or is our primary goal is to have the institutions provide transformative services for the clients and the communities we're serving together. Oh yeah, that actually made me think about another point too, is like our community practice groups. So sometimes mm-hmm. I was like, okay, how open is it? You talk about community practice and sometimes in terms of specific disabilities, it's not a bad thing to actually invite like non-OTs to the discussion, especially if people with yes. experiences to share what they experience in particular areas that are of interest to us to learn, important too. I think we need to look at diverse revenue streams to support our associations and think more creatively beyond conference in the modern era, that there are different ways that you can support building an income and doing strategic partnerships that can help relieve some of that pressure to have conferences be so inaccessible as the way is the primary way of generating revenue. Bill, I'm wondering, are you comfortable if we continue having these conversations over time? Because I think we're going to be both following and hopefully supporting each other's careers. And I'm definitely going to keep you looped in as part of this community. You're always going to be welcome to share this platform. And I'll definitely be highlighting and supporting your work and your TEDx talks. Bill's going to be partnering on this textbook chapter, and we're going to create a nice way to capture some of his occupational history with how he became involved in TEDx events and the ways that his work has actually shown ways that we can take theory into the field and practice creatively with the OT Without Borders community. So definitely everybody that's listening, follow Bill, keep in touch with this discussion. Are you okay if we go into some concluding thoughts, Bill? Yeah, I think otherwise it'll be for hours. I know, we might already have to divide this into two episodes, which I'm okay with. (laughs) Perfect. Bill, do you have, what are on your thoughts as like a conclusionary things in response to this discussion? Conclusion, I think that, I think it's important to be, let's see, I think we talk about mentorship. I think this mm-hmm. is a very important part, especially for people from disadvantaged backgrounds. So we talk about not only ethnicity, but also disability, social economical status. I think that's very important. And I think that it's also important to be strategically disruptive to the status quo of a profession, because otherwise we won't grow as a profession as a result. So I think that these are at least two concluding points that I can make so far. 
I love that so much. And I'm just really grateful for you sharing parts of your history and your example. And it's really helped me feel not as alone too. And also navigating pushback in these communities and not being aware of some of those informal curriculum and the unspoken rules of OT leadership. And honestly, I've noticed that I think me trying to make those rules more explicit is one of the things that inspires pushback because I think there are some communities in leadership that feel more comfortable with secrecy than making expectations explicit. And that's one of the things I think we challenge in the disability rights movement is when we're choosing to make things inaccessible, can we be transparent about why and where that's happening? And I think that makes people uncomfortable, but that just makes the work even more important to show up for because often our clients, especially in the autistic community, often aren't, don't have the same voices. If you have a voice that's being listened to in these institutions, I think we have an obligation, especially in OT, to partner with different disability communities to make sure their voices are amplified, especially around access issues. And it's our job to imagine and create pathways around these barriers so that we facilitate inclusion, participation, and occupational performance, well-being, and justice. If we are avoiding this work, I think we're avoiding our work. And so... Some of the things that I think can help in doing this work is building community and not being alone in it. So I already feel less alone knowing that I have Bill in my community. And I want to make an open invitation for you to be a part of this community and to get support where you're interested in thinking beyond the individualistic box and start seeing more of the systemic barriers that lead to occupational performance challenges, occupational well-being challenges, And I hope to share and offer with you guys how occupational science has been a lens that's helped me have a creative outlet outside of more restrictive cultures of OT practice. So hopefully this can be a lifeline. And if this isn't a lifeline for you, I just want you to keep exploring and not give up hope and know that there are so many people that may need the wisdom and insight for how you've overcome challenges in your own life and that deserves space to be celebrated, supported, and highlighted. And I hope that maybe we can be part of that community for you. And if not, you'll keep that hope alive, that you'll find people out there that do appreciate your trailblazing. And please keep going, resource yourself, take a break if you need to, but we have hundreds of thousands and millions of people all over the world that are asking us to be leaders in this space and to create change so that they can have a better quality of life. And that fuels me every day. If you're that kind of OT, let's please connect because that's who I'm trying to build community around, not within high school institutions, but also outside of these institutions so we can work together to evolve the ecosystem that we're a part of. I hope you can see and honor the contributions that Dr. Wong has brought to this space. And I hope you can see yourself in his journey and know that you have just as much potential and that we're here to support your growth as an OTP. So if you want that mentorship, please reach out. We'll try to find ways to support you in your growth as an occupational being. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today. All right.